Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode number 100. And 22. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mystery. Crime. Suspense. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week is... Jude Austin, speaking from... Japan. Chiba in Japan. Chiba in Japan. Lovely to speak to Jude, and uh, we covered all sorts of topics there, and uh, it was um, it was fascinating because again we're talking about different genres to the ones that we focus on ourselves. Yes, and um, we also go into childhood and space and AI and all sorts of things. Yeah, lots we? and lots. Sword of fighting. Sword fighting, indeed. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's what you learn if you go to Japanese stage school. Well, you, uh, yeah. Acting classes. So, um, yeah, you have to be a wielder. Well, they are quite into that, aren't they? Because you have, um, oh, what's it called? Japanese fencing. I can't remember. Kendo. Yes. Yeah, so they're, they're into fighting with sticks. They are. They are. Well, it was a pleasure to speak to her. But I think um, this week, as we always start with some news, I mean, really, there are two bits of news that dominate everything. And this first one is something we've debated all week as to whether we should talk about it. Because... Those who regularly listen to the show know that last week we were at Crime Fest in Bristol. We were indeed, yes. Now, we left mid-afternoon Saturday, just after recording what you heard last week. And th- that evening, everyone was preparing for the big dinner, which is a, a combination of, you know, a, uh, it's a big set-to dinner with an awards ceremony as well on the Saturday night. You're yes. looking puzzled. Yeah, because I thought that was the Friday, the, the giving out the short, well, the short list and the long list. No, that's the CWA daggers get announced. <sighs> Sorry. Okay. Stand corrected. Um, <laughs> no. no wonder we were oblivious to any um, issues because well, I, of how dash we left. Well, it was interesting because a lot of people were saying, you know, they were for those people who got the Sunday morning slot, the assumption was that everyone would be quite drunk from the night before and wouldn't show up for the for the early morning panels on Let the Sunday. Let me guess, it was packed. <laughs> Yeah, they were. <laughs> but uh, for those of you who have been following this story, you'll know what we're talking about. But um, for those who aren't, we want to familiarise ourselves with what has happened. So this week has been a very difficult week for everyone involved in Crime Fest. Um, we're thinking particularly of Donna and Adrian who run it. And mm. the reason is, is that on the Saturday night, the Toastmaster was a gentleman called Peter Guttridge, who is a very well-known figure in crime fiction circles. He has run the Brighton Literary Festival in the past. He is also a crime critic for crime fiction critic for The Observer. And he writes as well, doesn't he? He writes as well. He's a very, very successful and polished and well-regarded novelist. And he's been going to Crime Fest for years and uh, emceeing lots and lots of panels. Mm. 
uh, and and been very supportive of the festival. Uh, he was Toastmaster on the Saturday night, and as I say, there are awards being given out as well, uh, which uh, you know specifically for books uh, for this uh, competition at uh, Crime Fest. Yes, and all sorts of furore came from his speech. Now we don't know the details of what was said. Um, the first indication that something had gone awry, uh, at least publicly, was a series of twits, tweets by uh, uh, another author who was nominated, Finn Longmore, um, who uh, is currently studying at Cambridge University and was nominated uh, for their, one of their books. Mm. And there was a long series of tweets about how offended Finn felt about the way that Peter had opened his speech talking about pronouns. So now, there was no detail attached to that, but that then uh, encouraged a few other people to say that they were also offended by it, including people that we are um, we we, ha- we know and respect and, and are friends with. And Graham Bartlett, he reported back to the organisers that he was unhappy with the, the views expressed during the Toastmasters' speech. Mm. Ellie Griffiths also expressing that. And, of course, this then caused a huge Twitter storm from a lot of people who weren't there so I think what we're essentially saying is we can't comment um, about what actually happened because we weren't there, but we're, we are very interested in what happened after. Yeah, so the impact of all of this has been huge. And it has basically opened up a chasm within the crime writing community. Um, and Peter himself has defended what he said in the sense that he he was and he did talk about it. Uh, his concerns about the rewriting of classic fiction, mm. uh, particularly around Roald Dahl, uh, but also we've seen it in recent weeks with uh, Ian Fleming and Agatha Christie and a few others. Um, and this is a concern that is is widespread amongst, you know, authors, particularly authors of a, of a sort of more established reputation, I suppose, you know, older generation. Salman Rushdie has talked about it yes. as a big concern. And indeed... I was going to say, interestingly, Martin Amos, who we're well, going to talk about later. To, yes, we're going to talk about Martin later because, of course, that is the second big story that he passed away on Friday. And uh, we want to reflect on that because he was a giant of uh, of, the lit- of literature and... Brit lit. Yeah. And one of, the, well, one of the greatest authors of the last 50 years, without question, and one that's influenced us both. And... Uh, has some very interesting comments on the cancel culture. But basically, this has opened up a whole chasm of vitriolic uh, tweets and counter-tweets from all sorts of people. Oh, I mean, it's been it's, it's actually been difficult to concentrate on my work. <laughs> yeah, it has. It's been what, you know, I, I've, I have felt very emotionally drawn into it and angry, actually, and upset by the whole thing. And... It is symptomatic, I think, of the way that Twitter in particular, but social media in general, has coarsened the discourse, if you like, and redacted it to, you know, one view good, one view bad kind of approach. And the level of um, counter-accusation and shaming that's been going on on both sides has been awful to witness. And I suppose... um... It's not a debate. So I don't mind a healthy debate. And people have different opinions and different viewpoints. And I think that's always been the case through the history of mankind, you know, and that's part of what makes us interesting, that we debate things and we have different opinions. But on Twitter, especially, it's almost like you can't express an opinion without either side 
I'm not, so I'm not, you know, talking about mm. either opinion, but you can't express an opinion without the other side just jumping on you and just shouting you down. Yes, and indeed, there's been a lot of shouting down of people who've been asking just for more clarification as to what actually was said, as opposed to, um, you know, lots of things thrown out there in a very vague way, but we don't specifically know what was said that was so offensive because we weren't there and no one has really shared that. Um, but, you know, I, as I say, if if people who we respect and like very much, like Graham, are saying that they found it offensive, then, you know, that, that, that it, you know, it, there is a certain line that that's crossed for them. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, you know, then there's been this campaign for uh, Peter Guttridge and indeed other people to be uh, future, you know, banished from going to such events and indeed you know let's not forget how much energy and, and, and effort they've put into sharing a panel because if you do one of those things you have to read all the books of the authors involved <laughs> you say that well yeah. that's the idea i mean you know that's um you know it doesn't it, it, it's not an inconsiderable effort having no, said no. that having said that i appreciate that for certain people any questioning of pronouns and indeed any of those issues is an immediate red rag yeah and, and it, it red flag and it just you know triggers and i think a lot of assumptions that people who say these things must be a certain type yeah. of person whether it's transphobic homophobic whatever it is now i don't think necessarily that's fair but i think there is a genuine and i you, i've made my views clear on this in terms of rewriting classic literature to uh make it more acceptable for modern audiences i'm not comfortable with that in fact i'm i'm, I'm not you know, it goes stronger than that. I think it's fundamentally wrong, and I think it talks to the things that George Orwell warned us about. And indeed, a lot of senior authors uh, are now, you know, established figures are saying this is wrong. It is stifling creativity. Look at Anthony Horowitz and his views on how he feels his work has had to be reworked and forced through uh, the filter, in his view, of sensitivity readers and how that has changed his creative process, and he's not comfortable with it and he's not happy with the the end product. Equally, I understand that there is a need for people to, you know, they are fighting for their rights and for their views and for their for acceptance in society. But at the same time, by taking the extreme route of, of cancelling and, and shaming and all that stuff, I actually don't think it helps. I think it polarises debate and just entrenches you know, rather than actually trying to encourage people to look at things afresh and, and new, it is stifling debate. Yeah, but those people who are fighting for their right to be treated equally and understood no, absolutely. aren't necessarily thinking the same way about rewriting fiction. They might not necessarily have that view. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, they may not. And, and that is the point, isn't it? I mean, you know, there is it's a very broad church. And the crime community crime writing community, the fans and the authors and the editors and the publishers, we're a broad church. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different socioeconomic classes. We come from uh, different political points of view. Yes. And... I mean, look at the two of us for a start. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, the point is, yeah, I mean, it's all very well for me to sit here as a middle-aged, middle-class, university-educated white bloke, mm. Right. He worked for 25 years at the BBC uh, and all that stuff and was born in Cambridge, so I'm Southern as well, just to sort of pile it on. Um, there is an assumption. I go to these events now. I'm, I, 
we've gone to these events over the last three years. Uh, Harrogate, uh, Crime Fest, Bloody Scotland, uh, and a few other sort of smaller festivals. And each time we go, and I think this is an important factor, you know, our heart's in our mouth a little bit. We don't know how it's going to go. We don't know who we're going to see. Uh, certainly the first times we went, it was very, very difficult to feel part of it because we didn't know anybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you and, know. and, you know, you, you know, we're introverted, even though we present a podcast and we run a publishing company and I've been a broadcaster. It doesn't not, you know, I'm still an introvert at heart. And uh, I find it excruciating to go and walk up to some, somebody, you know, I want to speak to, you know, some of those big names that have been on this podcast. I can't begin to, you know, you, you and I know the sort of, we've gone around in circles building ourselves up to have the courage to go and approach Sir Ian Rankin and ask for an interview. Yeah, I mean, a couple of, I mean, when I, when I think of Harrogate, I think of walking up that hill um, of the um, hotel. So just the drive that leads up to the hotel and that, my stomach just going, ooh, and I see all the people mm. milling around in the beer tents. It's terrifying <laughs> for people like us. Now, I think that is a an experience that is often shared by people attending these things for the first time or indeed authors getting onto a panel for the first time. I think that a lot of people within our community are introverted. You know, 90% of authors probably fall into that category to some extent. And that going on a panel, I think Nadine Matheson um, was commenting on Twitter about this and I think she made a very good point, which is that chairs of panels need to be aware that you know, while they might be doing 10 panels and it's water under a bridge for them because they're doing it for years, for those first-time authors turning up, and you know, who feel intimidated by being in front of three people, facing a room of 100 is a completely different thing. So you've got to make them feel comfortable because one of the other complaints was that certain chairs have made first-time authors or indeed particularly women authors uncomfortable um, in the way they've been... Um, in, you know, uh, involved in yeah. those panels. So that's another issue in a way. Um, it, you know, it, they they cross over. It, it, it's very difficult to comfort, but that's also caused a huge, uh, you know, range of opinion coming forward about how badly people feel they've been treated at these festivals um, by certain people. And I think there is a, a, an element of, of, of that needs to be addressed here in terms of being warmer friendlier and more inclusive but then again i would flip it around and say look if you are somebody who's been going to these things for years has loads of friends in the industry it's a bit of a get together you know you're going to gather together and it's going to look like a clique to mm. those on the outside and that's how it's felt to us sometimes um i've often criticized harrogate it's nothing to do with you know it's just human nature i was gonna say it's just like when you go to the playground you've moved house to a new school yes. your children have moved yes. to a new school and it's a very good an analogy as a, as a mother i've been in that situation where you go to the playground for the first week and the first few days and there were, everyone's in groups and you just think you're thinking somebody come and talk to me because i can't talk to you yeah yeah it's that same sort of thing and it's not that they're being horrid or mean or it's just they know each other they're friends yeah and they, they've got that relaxed confidence that they've yeah. all known each other and they're well established and all that sort of thing and i think that there's an element of, of jealousy uh, that, that has prompted some of these comments however i would want you know it's unacceptable for for, for women to feel uncomfortable because you know some people describe you know, lecherous men 
coming at them and all that sort of thing. Well, uh, the, uh, there's what, a big article in the book, bookseller. But one point I'd like to make about, about that, that, though, is that is not just crime festivals. No, no, and it's I, not. The, the thing that upset me about that was the focus on crime festivals. And I thought, well, you know what? That is in all walks of life. So that's nothing to do with crime festivals. Yeah, there, actually... there is a wider issue that needs addressing. But at the same time, I think that, um, and this is, I'm not trying to victim shame or anything like that. I'm just trying to say that sometimes we bring our own, you know, in our uh, anxieties when we go to an event like this, um, we sometimes project it on other people. It's their fault that I feel like this. And actually, perhaps it isn't. You know, it's a contributory factor. But actually, it lies within you. Yeah, so I think what you're saying is, to use the playground analogy mm. again, you go to the playground and you're thinking they're not they're not being friendly, they're being mean, they're not thinking of including me, and it's not that, they just don't notice you're there. Yeah. Or Yeah, there's an element of that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's difficult for us to sort of draw conclusions to this, but I would say that I wanted to reflect on this because it really has dominated my thinking. I've lost sleep over it. I have a... Uh, an inbuilt anxiety around being the person I am. Well, I think what got me is when you said to, because we have debated a lot. Yeah, we've talked about in the middle lot, of yeah. the night and all sorts. And when you said to me, I don't know if I want to go to an event again because people might make the assumption because I'm a white middle class posh university educated man that, yeah. that, you know, they might be slightly fearful or of what I might say or what I might do or how I might act or if I buy them a well, drink. I fe- yeah, no, but also I'm fe- there is an element of me fearing what, how my, anything I do is going to be interpreted. And I think to put this in context, um, I want to be very honest about this. Uh, you know, I've talked at length about my departure from the BBC, but in the last few months I was there or as a member of staff, I was hit with people saying that I'd used inappropriate language historically and uh, as a result of that I was facing a um, uh, an HR I- inquiry if I chose to find out what was actually I'm alleged to have said now I wasn't allowed to know that so I left the BBC I resigned I'd resi- I'd already decided to resign because I couldn't stand working there anymore for my mental health I was falling apart and I was in, in great trouble, and I still suffer from it now. Three years on, I've still got post-traumatic stress disorder from it. My last three years, there was a living hell. And, sorry, I'm getting quite emotional about That's this. okay. Uh, but I want to share this, because this is important. And I felt, and I still feel to this day, that part of what happened is down to, yes, I until I, I don't know what I'm supposed to have said that, that caused offence, and brought these allegations against me so I just don't know and I was never allowed to know so I have no closure on it I have no understanding and trust me I would never want to um, make people feel that way Mm. that was never at any point in my life been my intention so I'm left hanging and this will be left hanging for the rest of my life not knowing what I'm supposed to have done but I I would turn this around and say I also think that at that stage in the organisation, there was a a general effort from the top to rebalance the profile of the staff and particularly management. And basically, they had decided as an organisation, there were too many people like me, middle class, university educated white men in positions 
of management. Mm. And I was the first to go and, and most of my contemporaries within the department I was working, and I'm thinking of about eight different people also fitted that category, have all been f- subsequently left their jobs because I was the first to be made to feel that I was surplus to requirements. And worse than that, um, they were looking for actively looking for opportunities to pile the pressure on. And the damage that did, you know, look, I can tell you that I was going into the office and thinking, how do I get through the day, spending hours crying in a corner because I've just felt so ashamed of being who I was and wanting to make a big gesture of tying a rope around my neck and throwing myself off one of the bridges at Salford Keys. That's all I could think about at times. And that's never been addressed. And I'm telling the world now that that's how I feel still. And so I now don't want to go to festivals where anything can be misinterpreted because people are going in with the assumption that people of my background are part of a problem that most of people in my background don't perceive and don't understand. And it's being projected upon us. And that's why I won't put myself into those situations. And so therefore, I will not be going to Harrogate this year. I I just will not do it. Okay. Well, what I would say um, to people who may have that perception is say... I would say to them, well, tell us, to, you know, people of a, of a different generation, we haven't grown up in um, with the same, um, it, it was just a diff- different culture, different times, and that, you know, it's, it doesn't mean you're a bad person because you're of that generation. But educate, you know, don't don't attack someone for saying the wrong thing. Educate them. Tell them why in a measured, um, you know, kind way what the problem is with the way they've behaved or what they've said educate them make them understand yeah but don't go into with the assumption that everybody exactly yeah because if it was reversed if it was reversed and and this is exactly the thing that most of the people who uh, who who are fighting on, on, on over these issues you know they're fighting because they've lived through prejudice and assumptions made about them because of their backgrounds mm. right the same thing you can't just reverse it and 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 therefore two wrongs making a right here mm. they don't um now you might a lot of people are going to listen to this and i'm going to probably cop a load of twitter abuse or whatever oh yeah you know you know educated white you know privileged bloke you know moaning about the situation but genuinely you've got to appreciate the damage that you can do and um i think that it's very hard for me to uh, to put it. I mean, I'm I'm trying to express this, and it's probably not the right forum, but this is very important to me. This has dominated my life for the last three, four years. You know, I'm the one having the nightmares still. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it, somebody could come back to you and say, yes, but I've suffered in the past because of the way the culture was. Now, my argument to that is, does that mean that the suffering has to be put on someone else who... Because you're a victim in a way. You're a victim of your times, of your background. Just as much as everybody is a victim of their background in some way. In you know, If they've been marginalised because of their background or their race or their gender or anything, so are you a victim now of your background? So why should you well, suffer? I, for, for... I, I am a product. I wouldn't say a victim. I'm a product of my background. I am a product of my background. And I... Well, heart, you know, I can't deny 
that there are values and behaviours and things that have come from the fact that I was privately educated till 16. Uh, I, you know, kept brought up in a, in a, you know, in a big house in Cambridge. Um, not particularly well off, but certainly rich in terms of cultural I was gonna say, exposure. Is it, and sort of intellectually uh, rich. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, you know, I went to a university, which is, well, you know, one of the poshest, in the, as we both did. I know. Um, and I felt, oh, I felt that when I went there, you know, I was completely yeah. out of my depth. All, but... all of those things are true. But, you know, at the same time, I bring a certain level of values to to what I do in life and I try to live by those. And sometimes, like everybody, I err from them sometimes. But I feel that I am sitting in a situation where I never got my chance to say my piece because I was so low mentally at the time when they said, well, it's your choice if you want to fight this or not. Oh, you're talking about the BBC? Now? Yeah, yeah, going back to that. I've never had the chance to express, you know, what to my, to know what I'm supposed to have done and then... And then have my opportunity to to uh, defend myself. Yeah, because I think everybody has everybody should have the right to reply with full knowledge. Right, and, and you, so you can't reply if you haven't back, got full knowledge. Taking back to this crime fest situation, if you're putting it, I mean, you know, look, I'm not I'm not trying to jump one side of the debate or the other, but the fact is that Peter Guthridge has been has been now judged in the public. Um. And everybody who's who said things about him has then sort of shut down their Twitter accounts and gone hiding again or refused to spell out exactly what it is that's supposed to have caused this level of offence. And so he's in a situation where uh, we're led to believe, and we haven't had this confirmed by Crimefest, he won't be invited back next year. And people were saying on Twitter, don't go to a festival he's involved in anymore. And And that's, again, you know, that is a very snap judgment. Mm. I mean... Is it is it proportionate? Is it is it is that really what we stand for nowadays? And I just and this goes back to cancel culture, which I abhor. I do. I absolutely abhor it because it shuts down debate totally. Yeah, it's At, a shutting down debate. That's the important. You thing. know, we've gone through generation. You know, there's you just look through history. There's so many examples of where when when it becomes, you know, you you have to think a certain way, and so many of our best writers have warned about this. And we're going to get to Martin Amos now. So <laughs> yeah. let's draw, let's draw, because this is going to be a very long episode, but I needed to express what I feel about this because it has had a very detrimental effect on, on how I felt this week about things. And I no longer feel about the community in general that I want to engage at that, at, the, at these forums anymore. Yeah, but I, I think that's horrible. I know, but I think you've got to accept that it's just the loud voices that we've seen, the loudest voices on both sides of the debate. Yeah, There's yeah. a whole lot in between all that. No, I know, but I, I think it's going to take me time to, to come to terms with that and, 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 want to, and want to engage. Yeah, okay, fair enough. That, that's just how I feel about it. Anyway, look, well, let's turn to Martin Amos. And um, so the news broke yesterday. Uh, this, we're recording this on the Sunday, and so the news broke that he died on on Friday in Florida of uh, cancer of the esophagus, aged seventy three, and of course son of Kingsley Amos. So a sort of literary dynasty, uh, satirical literary dynasty, and a, and a towering giant of of uh, late twentieth century English fiction. 
without question. One of the most influential authors of the last 40 years, no question about that. Yeah, I need to buy the Rachel papers for Josh. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> that's so a, that was his seminal first break, work, isn't his, it? His breakthrough work, and I've read London Fields as well. And I've read, was it Yellow Dog? Yeah. I think. Yeah, I've read that No, as they're, well. great, they're great books. And look, they're fairly far removed from the fiction that we publish. But we are, you know, huge fans of, of great writing. And he undoubtedly was. But he was a great thinker of life, I think, and had that clarity that came through. So I've picked out a few quotes. But this one, I think, is pertinent to what we've just been talking about. In fact, there are a couple. Um, he had views on, on cancel culture, and, and um, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. But this one was published uh, 11 years ago. And this is his views on ageing. <laughs> We're children all our lives. Until you're 45 or so, you still think you're going to live forever. You look in the mirror and think, well, most people die, but in your case, clever you. Lucky you. And then you pass 60 and you think, hang on, this will end in tears. But ageing isn't the steady accumulation of wisdom or knowledge. It's constantly improvising to meet new circumstances. I think that's really important. We're like children all our lives because every 10 years we have to acquaint ourselves with a new set of rules. Being 50 is not at all like being 30. You're always feeling your way. And you get a bit wiser as you get older, but you don't get physically braver. As a child, I expected that. As a grown-up, I was shocked to see it hadn't happened. <laughs> and I, th I just want to sort of repeat that line. We're like children all our lives because every 10 years we have to acquaint ourselves with a new set of rules. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about rules being set by a different generation. Yeah, As cult indeed, culture we, changes. We pushed things through when we were younger. We oh, were totally. passionate about things. And, and then you get to a certain point. And actually, what I think is, is true here is that if you're talking about people of a certain age, the older you get, the harder it is to adapt to the new sets of rules or indeed understand them. And I think that is at the centre of what's happened at Crime Fest. Yeah, and that's my point. You know, educate. If you think somebody isn't um, living within the rules in the right way, educate them as to what, why you think that and what they, what they can do to improve. Because nobody wants to hurt anybody, I don't think. You know, if, a, if they're essentially a good person, they don't want to hurt the feelings of another person or make them feel uncomfortable or... So... Yes. Um, I'm just looking for the further... Um, extraordinary uh life in quotes here we go it's in the guardian <laughs> and this i mean i'm going to finish with a positive one about writing yes good but uh i think that there's um on cancel culture this is just um what martin amy said about this every fiber in my being resists it's a philistine manifesto it's anti-creativity Appropriation means taking without permission. Who do you ask permission of? It's getting that way in every direction. I got bollocks for writing about the working classes in Lionel Asbo, but I've been doing that since I started. Mm, true, very true. Um, and then let's get to a couple of things on writing. To me, it seems like a part-time job, really, mm -hmm. in that writing from 11 to 1 continuously is a very good day's work. Then you can read and play tennis or snooker. Two hours, I think most writers would be very happy with two hours of concentrated work. <laughs> <laughs> I know why you like that one. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, 
And I think uh, there's another one about the... the, the uh, let's see. What makes you a writer? You develop an extra sense that partly excludes you from experience. When writers experience things, they're not really experiencing them anything like 100%. They're always holding back and wondering what the significance of it is or when wondering how they do it on the page. Mm, and I love this thing about signing sessions because, again, this is a crime fest kind of thing. I find that people take my writing rather personally. It's interesting when you're doing signing sessions with other writers and you look at the cues at each table and you see definite human types gathering there. With Julian Barnes, his cues <laughs> seem to be peopled by rather comfortable professional types. My cue is always full of, you know, wild-eyed sleaze bags and people who stare at me very intensely as if I have some particular message for them, as if I must know that they've been reading me, that this dyad or symbiosis of reader and writer has been so intense that I mustn't somehow know about it. That's interesting. I like Julian Barnes too, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's a lot, a huge loss. And, uh, uh, you know, there were contro- controversial elements and he, he was unafraid to say things that, that put people's noses out of joint. Um, evidently, uh, but uh, I think that we lose somebody who's extremely yeah. powerfully creative and changed the direction of literature. So, you know, uh, sad. But I think his his views on on aging, absolutely. I mean, the clarity in that thinking that you know we're always adapting to new rules, and sometimes we don't adapt, and that's where things break down. I think that's really very very powerful. Yeah, I agree. We should go into the interview now, we shouldn't should. we? We should. I'm sorry. Yes, enough of my, <laughs> my ranting and, and raving. Uh, let's go into our interview, yes. Um, well, Jude is uh, an author of sci-fi, and we haven't really touched on sci-fi. We did cyberpunk not so long yeah, ago. Yeah, so yeah, it's, good. it's refreshing to have something different again. Absolutely. So we speak to Jude Austin over in Japan. Well, it's really lovely to be speaking to Jude Austin. Uh, welcome yes, to the Podcast Book Thank Show. You. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great. You know, we are recording this uh, early-ish on a Tuesday morning because the time difference. Yes. You're, you're, last week we spoke to New York and this week we're speaking to where? Oh, you're speaking to Chiba, Japan. Fantastic. Tokyo. <laughs> Fabulous. So it's early evening for me. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got to ask what brought you to japan i mean you said uh, we were talking before the interview and so you've been there eight years i mean that's that's amazing well i used to live in fortaventura in the canary islands which i loved but there wasn't much work there so i had a couple of japanese friends both on the islands and in uk I was starting to get an interest in Japanese language, Japanese culture, because I love languages. I love learning them. I love inventing them for my writing. So I thought, okay, I will go and do a homestay, which I did in Osaka and Yokohama. And I just fell in love with the country and I came back to the Canaries and I put in for a student visa which I got about a year later. And then I went to Japanese language school in Yokohama. And then I went to film school in Tokyo. And then I kept going to film school in Tokyo, but moved to Chiba. (laughs) And then I got married and I've been here ever since. (laughs) 
That's awesome. Are you, what is film school? I've got to ask about film school in Japan. Uh, that's um, oh. that. It sounds amazing. What what sort of disciplines do they specialize in? I mean, is it you know hours and hours of watching Kurosawa films or, or what? <laughs> I don't um, know. We would have a subject like that. Yes. <laughs> um. Basically, they had a lot of different areas. So you had the acting area and the production area. And I started in the acting area because I really wanted to get into musical theatre. But sadly, I injured my knee. And the acting is very, very physical. Yeah. Like we had an hour of calisthenics every morning, <laughs> two hours of ballet on a Friday. And we had action, so like sword fighting. And there was no way I could do it. <laughs> So I switched to the production, and from there I did screenwriting, um, directing, Hollywood producing, and yes, we had a subject that was basically watching and analysing movies. <laughs> no, no hardship like there, that. surely. <laughs> but was it taught no. in Japanese? Yes. The one exception, we had a class called Hollywood Production, and the teacher was a producer, director, screenwriter from America. So that was taught in English with a Japanese interpreter. So I actually liked that one because I could really join in with the class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that's amazing. And um, is there a, a Japanese sort of school of thinking around? I thought you were going to say film no <laughs> uh, film production and, and and filmmaking because in a sense um, I mean some films have been enormously influential on, on Western culture clearly and Kurosawa is is one of those directors who's had a big influence um, mm. to the point where you know the Magnificent Seven's a remake isn't it and um, yeah, it's of Seven Samurai <laughs> uh, so I, I I just wondered how much of a sort of Japanese philosophy is is passed down through generations of, of filmmaking or is it uh is it sort of a wider perspective than that um the japanese way of thinking is very strong in the physical acting classes so for example when we did the sword fighting we had the wooden katanas and they are really heavy they're about three feet long solid wood <laughs> and we would do like 50 moves followed by another 50 moves followed by another 50 moves and then we might get a break mm, that sounds yeah but, it's about stamina yeah. isn't it mm. but if someone made a mistake we had two teachers and they were always going back and forth among the rows just watching and looking and if someone made a mistake, they would stop the whole class. But you would stop in position. So that would be like in the middle of a, a squat with this three-foot sword over your head. And you would just have to stand there without moving until they finished straightening this guy out. And then you had to pick up exactly where you left off. <laughs> 
So that was really hard. It was fun, but I wasn't sorry to drop that class, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I dare say. I mean, that is mm. that is amazing. Um, you know, I mean, I, I know that you know graduates of RADA can ride a horse and can wield a, an epe or something um, mm-hmm. as part of their sort of curriculum, but that's taking it to another level, isn't it? It is really, yes. And we also did acrobatics. Really? <laughs> so, yeah, really. <laughs> so it started with the kind of thing we used to do in gymnastics class at school. So forward rolls, backward rolls. And then it would go on to handstands, hand walking, backflips. And I was really upset because that was the class I really wanted to do. And like I say, I blew my knee out before mm. we could start the really good stuff. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> it is. Yeah. One day I will do a backflip. <laughs> well, hold day, you to that. Day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are things I couldn't do. At school. I mean, I can walk three. I think I could do four walking on my hands. No, I mean, now. you could forget. I mean, I can't do a forward roll now, but I couldn't do a backward roll yes, when I was at school. Roll. I was hopeless. <laughs> And yeah, I was quite sporty, but I just couldn't do the. Yeah, but you're 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 not bendy like me. No, I'm not at all flexible. No, No, you're right. So wow, that's 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 a hard schooling. I mean, that that is extraordinary. So, I mean, we've got to obviously move on to to writing, which is Mm. the purpose of this podcast. But yeah, (laughs) um, as ever with me, I'd like to go down a cul-de-sac if I hear something that piques my interest. Yes, I also think people would be interested to hear this because yeah, (laughs) because I, I, you know, with all that background, you know, the, I mean, a lot of. A lot of character development mm-hmm. for authors is, you know, one one of the tips that people are given and the, they, they could think about pursuing is actually looking at it from an actor's point of view. How do you build a character as an actor? Yeah. And what facets of that character do you manifest physically and vocally and all the other things? You know, what do you try and also inhabit in your head to give mm-hmm. life, you know, you're in close up you've got your eyes to, to convey what you're thinking and, and acting. And one of the things that uh, I indulged in a couple of years ago was to get the masterclass with uh, Samuel L. Jackson, who talks about this a lot. Uh-huh. And um, he, he, you know, he, he's not necessarily known for his writing, but he was saying <laughs> that he doesn't, he can never enter a scene without a specific thought in his head. And it's often not even the thing that he's supposed to be thinking as a character. He's thinking about the washing up or something. Uh, yeah. But as long as he's thinking about something, his lies light up. His eyes light up. It's light. His lies light up. <laughs> and um, I just wonder whether when you're building characters, some of that screenwriting, obviously, but the acting comes into play when you're when you're creating your characters and worlds as well because you you know i know that in your genre the world is a very important element of it mm. yeah um see this is hard because for me the creative process is far more of an ongoing thing mm. i'm i'm a panster i'm not a plotter so yeah <laughs> you're you're with so, the panthers union here so yeah absolutely Fantastic. I knew I wasn't the only one. <laughs> so my characters and my worlds kind of evolve organically as I go. So like with One Planet, um, Trandelia, 
I never sat down and thought, okay, I'm going to invent a world. I just thought, okay, I need a planet that's not Earth. That's a cool name. I'm going to draw a map just so I have some point of reference. And I'm going to see what comes out. <laughs> but if I'm struggling to move on, like if I get writer's block, very often what I do is I act the scene as every character in that scene so I can only do this when no one else is in the house <laughs> <laughs> so some solo improv and and do you um how do you capture that do you, do you record it do you uh do you video it what, what would what would you do or just um just use it just fuse, then then get it down on paper I just use it and get it down on paper but do you find that an effective Sorry. way to get through the writer's block? Because I've never heard of anyone doing that. So I find that quite of you. No, I have. I mean, that's something I do. I mean, as you know, I will, you know, three in the morning, go into character sometimes. Oh, and yeah. So... Start improving as so-and-so, you know. Yeah, I suppose. Okay. But... Yeah, but I have done that. Yeah, definitely. You're more likely to be Michael Caine at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, uh, that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be one of the greats if you're going to do it at 3 a.m. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's a bit unnerving, though, if I'm half asleep and I think I'm next uh, to Michael Caine. And, and I'm doing, doing the bit yeah. where he gets a little bit, <laughs> he's trying to find the right word and getting a little bit hesitant. And, darling, do you think you could pop down and make me a coffee? No. So <laughs> <laughs> answer, no. Three o'clock in the morning, no. Well, that's how he met his wife, wasn't it? Because she was on the Maxwell House coffee advert. It's got three o'clock in the morning to make him a coffee. Well, I thought that would be part of the digital. I mean, you, you, no, okay, right, I'll digress. <laughs> yeah, so, well, uh, ex except for that, his funny three o'clock in the morning thing, I haven't really, yeah. no, not many people have said that they've done, the sort of turn it into a physical performance, but I like that idea. That's a good way to sort of almost get your energy going, I guess. And, and it's really good for stress. Right. So even if I don't have writer's block, if I'm feeling stressed or worried... I just come up with this spontaneous improvisation in my head and act it out and Fantastic. yell at the walls. And then my cat comes and attacks my feet and then it's all over. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good while it lasts. It's good for yeah. that, aren't they, cats? They, you know, getting in the way. When you, just when you don't need them. <laughs> yeah. I know this is something that Rebecca wanted to talk about. She mentioned maps, and um, uh, this yeah. is a big feature on your website as well, the, the, the care and attention you pay to making, making maps of the worlds that you're creating for your science fiction. Uh, mm. how, much, how much time goes into that process? Um, a lot less. Now I've discovered the website that does it for me. So I draw it out um, with pen and pencil and then I well I don't have a scanner so I just take a photograph upload that and there are a couple of really good sites where you can just you can upload your images and then just draw over the top and so that's what I do it takes about yeah, it, it takes about three, four hours to go from sketch to finish. Yeah, and they're beautiful. I mean, I, I had a quick look. And Thank you. 
you know the 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 sort of the depth and the dimension and the you know the coloring and all that sort of thing it is it's fantastic what you can achieve but that that, it brings me on to one of our pet subjects at the moment which is in a sense that's using ai to help your creativity isn't it it's using a tool to help my creativity yeah it's not entirely no no i'm not i'm not suggesting that it's you know it, it it is it's fleshing out the original intention which is slightly different to make me a world and i'll write about it which is what AI is currently doing to, for a lot of people. Mm. I like the maps because yeah. we, we, we were at Crime Fest in Bristol on the weekend and we were mm-hmm. having dinner with two writers, one of one of which is ours and um, Graham Bartlett, who is sort of a police um, consultant to the stars, as I call him. And uh-huh. I was telling them that when I was a child, I used to do maps of Beano Town because I read the Beano. <laughs> And I thought well, everybody did this. I was quite surprised. They looked at me a bit surprised because our mm. author, Brian Price, has his own fictional town. And I thought, if it was me, I would have drawn the town and put where all the shops yeah. are. And I thought yeah. that was normal, but apparently not. <laughs> so it was really good when I saw your website and realised that, you know, there are other people who draw fictional maps. Yeah, it's normal for some of us. <laughs> Are these do these feature in the books themselves, or is this just something you have on the website and you keep for yourself? Um, they haven't been put into the books themselves. No, I might do that, but to put them into the books, I would have to do like just plain outline. So you'd lose a lot of the color, a lot of the detail, because yeah. printing a color map would be prohibitive. I don't know any author, indie or professional that's actually done that no that's true it'd have to definitely have to be black and white wouldn't it and yeah but tolkien-esque yeah <laughs> yes it was it was a great one for... do you know i'm going to shock you now rebecca no, you've made me for a long time and actually i have to confess that i used to make maps you didn't say this when we were at dinner the other night you made me look like i was a bit geeky and weird <laughs> I, I, I did play that yes no i mean it's very I did... naughty well i did i i made a um I made a street map of Moss Eisley, which is from Star Wars. Oh, right, yeah. uh, Long before the Mandalorian yeah. went back there, all, um, you know, Boba Fett and all that stuff. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to sort of put the cantina scene in context and, you know, working off the basis of what you actually get to see, I sort of created a whole thing um, when I was younger. But that's because, and this is, brings us back to you, Jude. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was seven years old, my after Star Wars came out and I was mind mind blown and so was my uh, closest friend at the time andrew clark andrew mm-hmm. was a real devotee of science fiction at that stage anyway he had every doctor who book you could imagine <laughs> in target he was reading isaac asimov he was much brighter than i was and we sat down together and we created something called the saga it's what we uh, it, it never got a proper name but we were right co-writing a sci-fi saga uh, and that was the basis of all the times we went to play at each other's houses was to go and essentially write the saga. We didn't get more than about 10 pages in, but I know that that will chime with you because you started writing at 11 uh, and uh, started building your own sort of sci-fi sort of world and experimenting with it. And so uh, I just thought that, you know, we should, we should share that passion because I've never taken it any further with sci-fi, although it's still my number one thing to watch yeah i mean i actually i first got published at 11 12 
and that wasn't sci-fi that was actually pony magazine <laughs> brilliant <laughs> of all things <laughs> so what was that short story was it they were doing a like a serial called valentine farm and at the end of the first episode there was this little i don't know call to action so you know do you think you could write an episode of valentine farm well, send in your ideas so i did and i got a letter back saying oh we would love you to write episode five <laughs> so i did that's that. amazing that's so cute that's like every child's it. dream isn't it oh i love yeah. that so did you get the book then from that point on? Did you think that's it? Yeah, that early validation must have been a very significant moment. Um, I wish I could say yes, but the truth is no. <laughs> now, I've been I've been writing, not seriously, but since I could hold a pen. Literally, I used to make my own books from post-it Wait. notes. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you can still get them. But when I was very young, my parents had a business from home. So we had a lot of office supplies lying around. And you used to be able to get like post-it notes that were about that thick with a hole in one corner to put your pen in. And I would just take a wadge of those and I would write a little story And when I finished that, I would write another little story and I would fill notebooks with stories. But I never really thought of making it a career until I was about 18. And that's when I wrote, it was a fan fiction because I'm a huge supporter of fan fiction, any way, shape or form. I think it's the best way for any writer to learn their craft. Mm. Mm. That's a good point, Um, yeah. And this one was about an actor. And the story was mine. It was just the actor wasn't. And when I finished it, I had about 70,000, 80,000 words. And I thought, oh, that's a book. So, okay, I just changed the actor's name. <laughs> and I, it needs a lot of reworking, so I don't suppose it'll ever see the light of day. <laughs> but th- that's when I thought, okay, maybe I could make a career out of this. Yeah, because I mean, the, the the number one challenge for any author is to actually finish, and you did Absolutely. that. Yeah, but yeah. I think every author's got their bottom draw book, haven't they? Because that happens quite a lot. Of people say to us, "I wrote a book; it's never seen the light of day." <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but it gives you that that start, doesn't it? And it gives you, it teaches you what you need to do, so that when you have a bit more confidence and what you subsequently write, you can do that. Yeah, I have about 10 completed novels. Only four have been published and one I have disowned. (laughs) So (laughs) really, I only have three completed novels. Let's forget the fourth part. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's. I'm glad you brought up the subject of fan fiction because Mm. – Within my own family, uh, my my niece writes fan fiction um, as well, as and she's very very creative, and it's really her number one outlet. Um, mm. You know, because she she has um, 
she's suffering from considerable ill health at the moment. And um, she writes fan fiction. It's K-pop, uh, isn't it? K-pop, it, yeah. yeah, around oh, K-pop. Yeah. And she's, she's got a really big following on Wattpad um, yes. as a result of this. And what, so that, Wattpad? What, Wattpad. What is Wattpad? Wattpad is, <laughs> is a... Um, it's a sort of short form um, platform where, you know, you can upload your stories and people subscribe to read. Them oh, like Kindle Vella. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the like original fanfiction.net, but right. for original fiction too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as you say, I mean, because in a sense you're exploring how to write within a world that already exists or with characters that already exist, that is, that takes, you know, that allows you to focus on, on the, the mechanics to, to a degree and finding your voice mm-hmm. um, without yeah. the, the additional challenge of creating everything from scratch. Yeah. Absolutely. Also, people I do like, like fan fiction. They like to read about people. I mean, it depends what it is, isn't it? But if the world's already been created to a certain degree or, or it's a slightly different world, they like to read about it because they love the original. So, yeah, yeah it's definitely a space of fan fiction but moving moving from fan fiction through to you know your original work now uh mm-hmm. how difficult was that transition Did, was it was it organic and very natural it was organic i still write fan fiction it's they're like two separate styles of writing for me so and as i say i've been writing original very short stories since i was very young so it, it was kind of I did both side by side. I mean, when I was 11, I wrote something called the York story. And I called it this because I started it on the way home from a school trip to York. (laughs) It it has never had a title. It never will have a title. And I, I think I still have most of the books. But that was basically an Aliens fan fiction. Mm, okay and that spans like seven notebooks I, I have no idea how many words but wow. occasionally I take it out and I look at it and <laughs> it was written by an 11 year old and it shows and I I kind of switch between cringing and hysterical laughter <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but you know unless you, you did that and, and you know, so was Sigourney Weaver's character involved in, in, in that fan fiction or was it a spin-off with the rather wider marine? Based in York, presumably. <laughs> I actually know, as I say, it was just written on the way home from York. Um, no, it was the Marines. It was only the Marines because I was going through a bit of a military craze at the time. And, you know, oh, I want to join the army, I want to join the navy, I want to join the marines. So for me, and because I saw aliens when I was a lot younger, the marines were the cool guys. (laughs) You know, you've got Sigourney Weaver, you've got the emotional journey she goes through as Ripley. But at 11 years old, I didn't appreciate that. Mm. So for me, it was just the the marines with the guns blowing things up. I think, I think a lot of people go through the military phase. I, was I don't know, say, I've like, never been through a military Oh, I did watch Private Benjamin and thought, oh, that's me. Is that a military phase? <laughs> Not necessarily. No, no, no. I mean, I, I definitely had the uh, the sort of um, pre-teen military phase mm-hmm. and I'm still fascinated, as you know, because yeah. I watch anything involving submarines. <laughs> um, 
Um, my youngest is in, uh, what does CCF stand for? Combined Cadet Forces. Yes, that. I just call it CFC <laughs> and that, he gets upset then. He says, it's not CFC, it's CCF. <laughs> And he does, he when he comes to say good night to me, so I'm lying in bed, and he comes in to say good night. He'll he'll uh, what, what's it called? Like, he kind of marches and he turns and he salutes and he turns and he. And it's like oh, good night then. <laughs> <laughs> could be worse. He could be saluting you with uh, you know other hand gestures. Um, so no, that's good. No, that's what you do. Oh, quite. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, what I find. Um, you know, and I was the sort of devotee of things like Warlord comic and Commando and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I still, I still have a hankering to read those sort of things. Well, there's something in the bathroom that's got an army man on the front. What's yeah, that? that's that's a military fitness thing, um, <laughs> which never gets opened by me. I know you read it. You did a lot. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, um, but nonetheless, I never, I never had the gumption to do it. But I do find that whole thing fascinating, and I think it's the, it's the um discipline and the you know the, the sort of um spirit in which you know things mm. are achieved um collectively in in that environment so i mean in terms of your writing how much does that still rub off on in your world is it is it is it still is it uh, are your sagas and your your sci-fi um militaristic in any way or is is it is it exploring other aspects of life um i write what i call sci-fi realism which is basically sci-fi with no ai no dystopia at all no evil governments basically a nice optimistic look at the future so there is the military and one planet is very militaristic but it's more, they take the military seriously, but it's quite mild. So think MASH. Mm, okay. that I love of, MASH. <laughs> me too. I was watching it before we started talking. <laughs> it was my Wednesday night treat, MASH was. BBC Two, Wednesday mm. night, nine o'clock. I don't know how I remember that, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, it's... It kind of influenced it a bit, I think, but I don't write military sci-fi because there's quite a lot of that out there already. So I prefer to focus on day-to-day life, day-to-day people. Um, I'm a big fan of found family in like my work and my fan fiction has a lot of found family themes. I don't know why it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, an awful lot of, of science fiction has been around, you know, mm. uh, reflecting concerns about the future, you know, go back to Aldous Huxley or something like that, and mm. you know, genetics mm. and things. Um, and that, that that is increasingly prevalent now as we're actually beginning to live in a reality where AI is so influential. Um, is, so is it an escape in that regard, you know, not you know, putting aside those those technical influences and, and and the bad people yeah um is that is that part of the, the appeal to you um yes i mean i don't understand why everybody thinks the future is going to suck i've never i think we always that. have done though haven't we we well, always think technology is bad <laughs> um 
but I, I am very, very opposed to AI development. I always have been. I, I think we could spend the money on much better things. And, you know, I, I don't care if I can have a conversation with my microwave when I'm 80. That doesn't interest me. What does interest me is when I'm 80, will I forget my husband? Mm. Will I forget everything we did? Will he forget me? You know, I would far rather see the money for AI put into something that would benefit humanity as a whole, like a cure for Alzheimer's or much better treatment for Alzheimer's than making a talking toaster or a robot that can flip burgers at McDonald's. Um, so, yeah, I am. Um, you will not find any AI in my books for precisely that reason. <laughs> but I think that's refreshing, isn't it? Because we don't always want to read about the doom and gloom of what could happen and, and do we? So... I don't know. I mean, I, I lean towards dystopia. Um, it's just always been my nature, really. Um, if I'm honest, you know, I have. I, ever since, you know, all well and all that stuff I was reading as a teenager. I think that's slightly different, isn't it? That's a very... And I, I remember writing mm. something for English and I got a really bad mark for it. And I... Um, I uh, it started that the opening line was, they were coming. And, you know, it was sort of like ah. a paranoid. Now, that's of... going to go down in the history books as a good first line, is it? They were coming. He, he goes, I'm interested. Oh, we were coming. Sort of shit again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were coming. It, the, you did the voice well, though. Well, yeah, but, you know, yeah. that's my thing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> um, they were coming. Yeah, well, that's the <laughs> thing. I think if I'd been able to read it out loud, it might have made a better impression. But, you know, that's mm. well, that's often the way, isn't it? That, you, you, you can't. You can't predict how people are going to react to it, but I thought it was a really good piece. Um, mm. But yeah, it was a paranoid sort of uh, dystopian world I was I was writing about. Yeah, this is making me think that um, all we've been talking about as well that children are natural writers of fantasy and sci-fi because we've all done it at some point in our childhood, yeah. or most children have, and then some go on and carry on and perfect that, and others like you and me because I certainly don't anymore. Unfortunately, we just mm. sort of lose that. I think that's quite sad. I got penalised in school for writing sci-fi, fantasy, anything. So when we did English coursework for GCSE, it would always come back and everything, every story I wrote would come back pure fantasy, but still very good. I was like, you know, guys, the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's just that's really tragic, isn't it? Because they they weren't they weren't valuing it. No, and for my Excel exam, we had to make this spreadsheet calculating averages, etc. You know how you do. And all the other students did like book sales, CD sales, and I did the number of aliens entering <laughs> the Zfoom system. <laughs> and we had a checklist you know this is what you must do to get a pass this is what you must do to get i forget what they call it distinction whatever mm. 
And I ticked everything for distinction. And my teacher confirmed, yes, you've done everything. The exam board gave me the bare pass because it wasn't books or CDs. Well, because it wasn't a, uh, based yeah, on, because... on actual reality. That, that is harsh. That is harsh. That's really And hard. everything else was fine. So do you think this, uh, well, I mean, this bias against fantasy writing creativity still exists um, within that sort of sphere or has the, have things moved on? Oh, that's a very good question. I think part of the other reason I wanted to come to Japan was because they are far more accepting of fantasy settings. And if I wrote, okay, there's, there's a game, a very old game called Shining Force, which is a fantasy role-playing game. It came out for Sega. And there are all these different races. And I can't help feeling if I wrote something like that in England for a UK audience, people would turn around and say, ah, oh, yeah, but how did this happen? How did that happen? Why are they doing this? Wouldn't they do that? Wouldn't they do this? And in Japan, it's just like, who cares? That's the world. The important thing is the story. <laughs> I think right. that's a very good point because my, I mean, it's a while since I lived there, but I can, mm. I know what you mean. They, yeah. they, they love living in an alternative environment in, in their imagination. That it doesn't yeah. matter. Why, why would you bring in reality and start questioning mm. things? Because you, you're there because you don't want reality. But we yeah. are very cynical. I think. Is that? But is yeah. that? I mean, it's an interesting question because. We've, we haven't always been, as a culture, as didactic as we are in in, mm. in UK and, and the West in general. Because if you think about the uh, legacy fiction that we've grown up with, Lewis Carroll. Yes. Tolkien. Yeah. Um, lots of, of examples that you can pluck out, um, which are fantasy worlds. And they are, you know, a bit of Rudyard Kipling even. Um, mm. They, you know, there's a, there's a lot. Of there's a as a culture we were a lot more accepting and indeed if you think about the fashion in Victorian England for uh, heraldic stories of stir you know and Arthurian tales and things like that that you know that, this has always been part of it and yet, and yet somehow mm. now it's become a niche it's become oh you're one of that lot geek kind yeah. of approach. <laughs> I, I, I now want to know why and how that's that's happened. Mm. Oh, you and me both. Is it? Yeah, it's interesting, I, isn't it? I hadn't thought of it like that. You know, or even in the nineteen fifties. Um, you know, John Wyndham is very influential on me. My oh, thinking. yeah, uh, and, and indeed, you know, they were coming. Um, <laughs> influenced by by John Wyndham. <laughs> you know, that's that's all. That was extremely popular stuff and mainstream fiction, and now. It would be seen as oh, it's it's a niche, yeah. It's like romance yeah. as well. It always upsets yeah. me when people say, "Oh, romance, that's like lowbrow." We mm. we've become much more divisive in where we put literature. I think in the in yeah. this country, at least, so far more judgmental. We need to we need to change this. <laughs> you, yeah. 
<laughs> well, uh, we're, we're reaching that point, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid, where we, we need to uh, either raise the tone or, or lower it. I don't know which one sometimes, <laughs> depending on what comes out of Rebecca's mouth in a moment. But it is time for, <clears throat> is the voice, Rebecca's random question. Well, I'm going to start off with an apology to the audience because this is not as random as normal. And it's because you live in Japan. So my random question is based on living in Japan. Okay. I would like to know, what is your favorite Japanese word and why? Oh, boy. <laughs> I have a whole second language. You want me to pick one word? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... I can give you my favourite hiragana. Go um, on then. Te. Te. Why te? See, he's probably thinking, what? Yeah, what are these strange people talking about? <laughs> um, it was the first one I learned to read. Okay, it's quite an easy one, isn't it? Because it's just like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I remember it. What's yours then? Like? My fa- okay, my... F- oh, well, like you, there were so many. There was there were lots mm-hmm. of words in Japanese that don't have a one-word translation in English. You might be able to describe it, but there's not necessarily just one single word. And there were many. And one of them was e, as in ina. Oh, so net. Also, genki. I loved genki because it mm. could mean um healthy but it also could mean sort of emotionally well uh, as well as physically well or just sort of not quite cheerful but just sort of okay (laughs) (laughs) okay I've got one I've got one um I like shiawase because for the audience (laughs) Japan in English you have one word for happy but in Japanese we have two. So, ureshi and shiawase. So, ureshi is like you're happy about something good that's happened. But shiawase is a really convenient word because it means I'm happy, not for any particular reason, but life in general is good. <laughs> mm. that, that, yeah. So, it's, it is interesting, isn't it? There are these these words that we we don't have, but you know we know mm. what you mean by that. But we would just use happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so indeed, yeah, if it was my teenage, my um, elder son, it would just be decent. Yeah. That's the only word he ever so, uses for anything. Another Japanese word I remember very well, not necessarily because I liked it, but because I taught in a high school, I heard this word all the time. Hawaii. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> kind of means cute but we don't have an equivalent either because it's sort of like cute or or pretty or um makes you feel good or you like you know aesthetically pleasing it could be it's like the concept of cuteness yeah but the 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 girls would say it all the time Mm. you'd show them a picture of something they go yeah (laughs) wow okay (laughs) I can't. I, yeah, I'm struggling to join in this conversation with uh, yeah, Japanese words. Yeah, I can ask you, can I? Because I normally ask you the question too. Your favourite Japanese word? You haven't got one. Um, Sapporo. Uh, <laughs> you like ekonomiyaki? Uh, I do like economy. Sushi, sashimi. You like all that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally what about no, takoyaki? Yeah. 
See, no. Okonomiyaki, just just digression into Japanese. I loved mm. Okonomiyaki in Japan and you couldn't find it anywhere in the UK. There's one, I know of one Okonomiyaki restaurant in London mm. and that's it. There's probably more now, but. Oh, I'm going to make you jealous. I do like ambassadorial work for Japanese company Otofuku Sauce. And they are trying to market Okonomiyaki to the West, including UK. Excellent. That makes me happy. What they want to do is they want to roll out this kind of make your own okonomiyaki kit. So with the flour, with the sauce, with the spatula, with everything. So you might see it in your local supermarket in the future. I would love that. I would absolutely love it because it was my favourite just sort of Mm. comfort Japanese food. Yeah. The, uh, the other teachers we'd go out and we'd have yaki and then go sing karaoke and drink lots and lots and lots of beer yeah <laughs> well that's and, you know you got my mouth watering now and it's uh, morning on master chef one of their skill tests was yaki but it was completely uh-huh. wrong they just and i was thinking you're master chef but you're not cooking it properly yeah well that's, it was like yeah. then they kept calling it pancake japanese you, pancake. yeah that's that's john for road for you who has you Aww. know ruined many an east asian cuisine uh, in the name of um, of Master Chef. I was getting very upset there, wasn't I? I say it's not a pancake. No, you're, you're quite right. Well, it is look, not Judy, a pancake. It, yes. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Where can people find your work online uh, and more about you? Okay, so I have a website which is www.judeaustin.net. And you can also find me on Amazon. With if you search five worlds series, you'll get my work. Fantastic. And I'm also well. on fan fiction. I know that because I searched your name on Amazon. You came up. So, <laughs> oh, good. I'm still there. That's good. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've covered a lot of topics and probably none yes. of which any of us expected to be talking about. But, but let's it... expect. We never know what we're <laughs> going to talk exactly. about. That is the nature and of the podcast. Just, book the builders have just come out because I can see them on the roof. They're sweeping the roof next door. Oh, good timing. <laughs> That's quite a way to finish, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. Rushing away. It's not a euphemism. No. <laughs> a crack has just opened up on that roof, so to oh, speak. Oh, God. Uh, I'm started now. Uh, with that smutty joke. Uh, <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Jude Austin, for joining us. Yes. Thank you very much. I wish I had her gift for languages. And me too, especially because I lived in Japan and I struggled to learn the language. I really did. I'd spend most of my weekends trying to get my head around it. Um, but, you know, after two years, I've probably had about a lay level level of Japanese, but I've lost it all now, except for the odd you word. No, you haven't. You're, Konomiyaki, you're... sayonara. <laughs> Konnichiwa. <laughs> oh, you know more than that. That's for sure. <laughs> um, well, anyway, look, it was a real pleasure. Who are we speaking to next week? So next week, um, not a writer. We're talking to an editor, um, Abby Rutherford, who um, I've corresponded a few times with Abby. I'm looking forward to the interview because she has um, pets and dogs, I believe a corgis or a corgi, I'm not sure. Mm. <laughs> and she says that, that normally gets interrupt, interrupted when she's on Zoom. So I actually hope we do. <laughs> yeah, well, no doubt, no doubt. Because we'll probably get Catus interrupt us this end. Probably. Uh, she's disappeared off uh, somewhere. I don't know where. It's a big week for us. We've got another book launching. You say that every week. No, it's a big week because we have a book launching. <laughs> yes, we do. And I'm really excited about this book because I absolutely adore the cover. 
um, designed by lovely Jane. So this is um, The Bad Neighbour by Jenny Ensor. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, it's a perfect summer book, in my opinion, because it's set during the spring and the summer of 2020. So you COVID. Get, yes. Um, but did you know you can't mention COVID or words associated with that time in Facebook advertising? I had no idea. So I had to sort of, I put, um, I think I put summer 2020 because I couldn't put lockdown. I couldn't put COVID. I couldn't put pandemic. Really? Yeah. They don't I, like that, it. They that's don't astonishing. Like it. Anyway, so it's set during that time and it's basically about what happens because, as you know, during that time, um, your your world shrinks, vastly shrinks mm. to just the people you live with or possibly the people in your immediate community, especially as things sort of started to open up a little bit. And it's about what happens to the minds of those people when there's one dark secret amongst them. Wow. So it's, it's good. It's a summer read. In my head, it's always sunny there. So. And it's 99p it for is. launch. I know. We're mad, aren't we? But go for it. Buy it. 99p. The Bad Neighbour by Jenny Ensor. It's not going to be 99p for long. Just a couple of weeks. So make you make the most of the um, opportunity. And in the last few days, we've also released a new audiobook, Cousin Ash, narrated by A.B. Morgan, written by Sue Shepard. That's yes. newly out. So take, that, take a look at that and go and find it on all available... I know platforms. it was actually on Audible before it I'm published. Never... <laughs> <laughs> Lauren to themselves. <laughs> Here's news: Audible have got their act together. That's unheard of. Well, that's uh, that is very encouraging. Um, and so uh, you know, we've got a week to half term. Yes. My son James has started his A levels and uh, has his history tutor A level. Actually, we've paper got this week in this house a week of exams because uh, Josh has got lower six mocks. Um, right. And Toby's got end of year eight. Exam, yeah, and so. my son Ben is just starting his finals at Loughborough. And yeah, Le- Le- Leeds is doing Luke exams. <laughs> Luke is doing oh, exams dear. in Leeds. What is it about this summer? Why well, ruin it with so many exams? But that's what they do. And that is the nature of life. Yes, but I have happy memories of, of lying in the sun with my books and the stone roses on my Walkman and things like that. Mm. <laughs> well, we'd like to, uh, I think we should wrap the show up now. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and uh, I appreciate that for some people, things that we've, we've talked about will be difficult, and some people might disagree with what we've also said. But that's, I like that though, but, healthy debate. But we're, we're we need more and of I it. I think we've we've tried to, to to cover all sorts of aspects of it, but ultimately, the crime community, in fact, the whole of society, you know, we just need to start stop shouting. At and each just other. be kind. Just be kinder to each other. And start talking to each yeah. other. Yeah. And uh, I hope that you know this episode reflects that because it's been it's been a tough week and um i think the ripples from this will carry on for for a long time and i think you know perhaps it needs some of these things needed to be said and expressed uh perhaps not in this way i actually agree with you yes i do i think it, it, it things do need to be said but that's what i'm saying i'm saying talk about it say it but don't shout it <laughs> yeah okay well look join us again next week for the Hopcast Book Show. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you, uh, even if it has been one of the more challenging episodes for us to uh, to, to, to deal with. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for our fiction side of things, our authors, audiobooks, our books. Archpub.net for our uh, publishing services. Yes. And uh, between now and then, we wish you a wonderful and creative week bye bye
You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.